speaking through me tonight. I thank you for your Holy Spirit moving up across this uh, platform here to every person that's going to be watching or listening, everybody live streaming, everybody's going to hear this. I thank you for your Holy Spirit moving upon us even now and giving us good fertile soul of hearts and minds and lives to have eyes and ears of the Spirit that we can see and hear, to be good soil of our hearts, that the word of the Lord is living seeds can be sown in that good soil, watered by the Holy Spirit, take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains until Jesus comes. Lord, I thank you for everything accomplished in and through this word that you will to be done as you move in glory and power, strong anointing in every life. Lord, we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. All right, well, we're on part 12 tonight, and we've covered a lot of ground, haven't we? We've gone through history and started out with, um, was it the Reformation, which, you know, in many ways was a revival, but really in the 1700s. And we talked about around 125 years or so, there was a, a real outpouring of the Holy Spirit from around mid-1700s, 1730s, 40s, 50s, all the way through till the um, 1857, 59 revival. There was around 125 years or so that God was moving like in the outer court. And then things changed, and God brought in the power of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and it was like the holy place. And we have the bells and pomegranates, remember, around the tunic. And, and there was like the menorah lit. Revelation, power, tongues, the gifts came back. There was a restoration. And now, around the 90s, is when we moved into the Holy of Holies. We began to move deep into the glory. And I was really privileged to be able to be right in the middle of the 90s revivals. And I was touched by just about every different stream and every move that was going on. And God did a tremendous work in my life. But before I get into this, let me give you one more pattern that, that I saw. Now, I understand that on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest went in the Holy of Holies once a year under the law, he only wore the white garment. So I know that. Okay, so just keep that in mind. But there is a pattern and the high priest had special garments that he wore that no other priest wore. And this was his garments. And this, and I'm going to show you something interesting. So the garments of salvation. So there was a, first off, there was a layer of white. This is like the garments of salvation. He had like a tunic on his head that was white. It had a gold plate. It's holy unto God. But there was a tunic there. And then there was these breeches that were like pajama bottoms that would cover, the Bible says, cover shameful nakedness. But they would go down to the ground and they pulled up and then there was a drawstring. It's interesting that Jesus came to the earth, he was lifted up, and then he's drawn people unto him. Isn't that interesting? So it is, it is the garments of salvation. And then there was a robe of righteousness, a white robe. And so again, it's a layer of pure white. And you know what that speaks of? Salvation. That speaks of the outer court, the blood and the water. And that's what God did back in that, the first 125 or so years, give or take some years, okay? But there was an outpouring there of salvation. And, and then God built on that. And that's the next uh, garment was the blue tunic. And it was, it was basically, it would go down be below his knees, 
but it didn't go all the way to the ankles. It went down past his knees, but it, blue speaks of coming down from heaven. And what it is, it is what Jesus called a clothing of power from on high. This is the baptism in the Holy Ghost. It had a reinforced neck area that was real thick because in biblical times when somebody was very grieved, something happened that was, that was terribly uh, painful, difficult, whatever, they would rip their garments. You grab the neck area and just rip their garments. But see, there was a reinforcement there where they couldn't do that because you got to be careful not, not to grieve the Holy Spirit, you see. And so this blue tunic, and it had bells and pomegranates around the bottom, which speaks of the gifts, and it speaks of the fruit of the Spirit, but it is a clothing of power, okay? And so that's kind of speaks symbolically of the holy place. And then the next one is the golden ephod, okay? And it was just a vest that went on top of the blue, and it's a gold vest, and it had a sash, and it had that breastplate that was on the chest area that had the 12 tribes of Israel, had the stones there. But that golden vest speaks of the glory. And so you see the same pattern, don't you? That you see around the first 125 or so, there was salvation. Then from a Sousa time frame until about the 1980s, what was it? The power of God, the tunic. And then once we crossed over the 90s, late 80s into the 90s, what happened? That golden ephod, the glory. So there's a pattern. And what you're seeing here is God building. You're seeing, the Bible says about Jesus, heaven must receive him until the restoration of all things. So you're seeing God's restoration through the years. He said, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit. He's been not only pouring out his spirit, but an increasing measure of the spirit and with more frequency. And so just like in the natural, over the last hundred years, this secular science has proven earthquakes have seemed to increase in frequency and severity. In the same way, there's been an increase of the frequency and the intensity of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So is this making sense? You know what's happening? God is getting us ready to meet the Lord in the air. That's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. What is the main purpose is to bring in the harvest and to also get a bride ready to meet the Lord in the air. So that's just another pattern that I saw was in the priestly garments. And I'll talk more about this in a future teaching, but just to give you something. But on the Day of Atonement, when he was going to go into the Holy of Holies, he took off the blue and gold and he just wore the white, but he had to go through a very a meticulous time of spiritual cleansing so that he could go in the deep place of the glory like that. And I believe that's prophetic, and I'm going to speak of it another time, but I believe that God is calling us to a very deep consecration to be a bride without spot or blemish because he's about to come, and he's really cleaning us up. It's a deep work of the Holy Spirit, okay? All right, so let me just dive into this. The 90s revivals. So really, this began in the late 80s, but let me open with Ezekiel 47, verse 1. Then he, then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and water was flowing out from under the threshold of the temple eastward. For the front of the temple faced east, and the water was flowing down from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around to the outside of the outer gate that faces east, and the water was coming out on the south side, 
and the man who had a line in his hand, so this was like a measuring tape, picture it that way, okay? He had a line in his hand, he measured a thousand cubits and he brought me through the water. So a cubit's about a foot and a half, but just for the sake of keeping it simple, let's just say he measured out over around a thousand feet out, okay? And then whenever Ezekiel walked out in that water, it, was, it reached up to his ankles. And then he took his measuring line again, like his tape measure, measured out another thousand cubits. And it says as, he, as Ezekiel went out in that water, it went from ankle up to knee deep, okay? And as he measured out another thousand, it said the water reached up to his waist. In verse five, after he measured another thousand, it was a river that I could not pass over for the water had risen enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed over. And he said, son of man, have you seen this? So it was over the head river. And so you can see that that's over the last couple hundred years, that's what God has been doing. He's been increasing his river. He's been deepening what he's doing. And so the best is yet to come. And here's, here's something I want to encourage you, River of Life. In the 80s, there was a book that came out, and I remember this. The prophets saw this, and they were talking about how God had done a preparation. And, it, and they said that there's about to be, they saw two waves. There's about to be a great wave sweep of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And it will usher in a great harvest of souls. And it's going to be strong enough that a lot of people are going to think, this is it. The Lord's about to come. This is the big one, you know. But they said it's not. They said there's going to come a greater wave behind that one, much greater. And many that were saved and touched in the first wave are going to be used in the last wave. And that's the big wave. That's going to be the big one. And let me tell you, there was prophecies that came out in the 80s about that. And even in the early days of Toronto, David Ruiz was playing the keyboard and the power of God hit him. And I think I've showed you all this video. And he began to prophesy. And he said, you think this is it. This is not it. God's only getting us ready for what will come later that's going to be much greater than this. I'm just trying to encourage you that it was already prophesied over that we were going to see the great wave of the 90s revivals. And we've already seen that swept the world. I mean, during that time, there was such an outpouring of the Holy Spirit happening in Argentina. It was happening in Toronto and through Europe. It was going on here in the Americas. And it also was taking place through Reinhard Bonnke out in the continent of our African area. And then also in the Far East with China. They were seeing a tremendous revival. In other places, the Holy Spirit was being poured out worldwide, a major move of God. And many thought this is it, just like the prophet said, but it wasn't. But many that were saved and touched during that revival are going to be used in the next one. And the second wave that they saw was far greater. It was like a tsunami. And that was the wave that was going to usher us into the presence of the Lord. Now, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all, seeing the glory of the Lord with unveiled faces, as in, the mirror, as in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord. And so God has called us to go from glory to glory. And what Paul was saying, if you read this in context, was that even under Moses, the law came with great glory. I mean, they had a pillar of fire over the Holy of Holies. And he was saying Moses' face would shine with the glory. If the law came with glory, how much more so would now the new covenant in Christ see great glory? And he's saying with ever-increasing glory. 
And my point, River of Life, is this. God is about to send the greatest move of God I believe this world has ever seen, and it's going to far supersede anything we saw in the 90s, which was amazing. I mean, in Toronto, they saw something like around three and a half to four million people go through there. In, a, in Brownsville, around four million. There was no telling how many millions of people, millions upon millions upon millions, got saved in Africa under Bonke's ministry. No telling how many uh, millions got saved in, in China. I mean, there was this huge sweeping revival. And you know what? That was the smaller wave compared to what's coming. It was prophesied even before that wave that there would be two. How many are ready for the next wave? And so, Brother Ralph actually brought this out, and I felt to remind you about this. There's ways that we increase the waters. You know, we're wanting to go from ankle, knee, waist, over the head, right? So how many want to experience that, a greater glory? I think for me personally, the way I see it was here, here in America, and I'm just talking about America right now. I believe when Rodney Howard Brown came here, it brought in like an ankle deep. It started in New York, and I'll, I'll share a little bit about that in a moment. It was like ankle deep. And then when it went to Toronto... It went knee deep. As a matter of fact, a lot of people went to Toronto and then brought the revival back where they were. And God was really touching people all over the world, really. But that moved it from ankle to knee deep. When it got to Brownsville, I believe it went waist deep. That was a, that was a deep glory at Brownsville. It really was. But we're about to see this. I believe this. We're about to see the over, over the head glory. And that's going to be what takes us into the presence of the Lord. I'm talking about the rapture, the marriage supper. So how do we increase the waters in our lives personally and in a church? And let me just add this. There's two older ladies that disciple me, Ruby and Addie. And Ruby told me one time, you know, she, she came from a Pentecostal background. And anybody that has deep roots in Pentecost going way back, they know about revival. And they know how to see a move of God in their church. They do. And she told me that. She said, she said Scott, these Pentecostals know how to see revival. She said they know if they really pray and, and they begin to really fast and pray and seek God and, and repent of anything they need to and really seek him and press in. So they're going to see a revival. But she said many places just won't pay the price. Now, I was talking to Brother Holt, and, and we had spent some time together this last couple of weeks ago, and I just saw him just a hunger in him for so much more, you know. And he's seen revivals. He was telling me about one, and just give an example of what I was talking about. He said back in the 90s, they had prayed and fasted as a church for just a couple of weeks. They had really sought God. They had early morning prayer. They organized it, and they even felt led to go out to the four corners of the area out in Sulphur Springs and pray. And there was an evangelist they invited in that was really anointed. And him and his wife were about to come in. They were on I-30 about to come into Sulphur Springs. And they pulled off the road, and they both saw it. And they saw something like, a, like a, a light, like a dome of light or something over Sulphur Springs. They both saw it. And they said, what is that? And he said when they came, they had an extended revival. And he said that church grew substantially because the people getting saved. And it was an intense move of the Holy Spirit. And that was just from seeking God for a couple of weeks. See, the Pentecostals of times past knew how to see a move of God. 
Why aren't we doing that now in a lot of places, you see? All right, so how do we increase the waters in our midst? Well, number one, dredging, which nobody wants to do. You know, you drive down the road and you look at different ponds. There was a story of a man that was seeing different ponds as he was driving, and some of them were, were low, and others looked really healthy and had enough, and they were full. And it come to find out as he looked into it that the ponds that were low and, and didn't look good had not been dredged, you see. So nobody wants to go through the trouble and all the work and everything entailed with dredging out something, but you have to do it to keep it healthy and to keep the water level up. And you know what that speaks of for you and I? That we begin to let God do a deep purging in us. Just like in the natural, whenever a, a child is going to be circumcised, it's a circumcision all the way around to remove the foreskin, extra skin, the flesh. In the same way the Bible says now that God's circumcision is in our heart. He's wanting all of that flesh and that worldliness to be completely circumcised all the way around and removed out of our hearts. Amen? And so there has to be that dredging where we say, Lord, search us and know us and try us and show us any wicked way in us. Don't hold back. Push into my life and pry out everything. Do a deep cleansing. And if we'll seek him, even adding some fasting into that, God will begin to do a deep dredging in our lives. But you know what? That cleansing out will cause the water levels to come up and be sustained there. But it requires that. And they understood that in the Azusa Street revival. One of the great messages at Azusa Street was sanctification. They believed that God wanted to sanctify people in a, in a deep way so that they could be baptized in the Holy Ghost and operate in power, okay? And so you had the dredging. And the next thing that we have is the rains. When we begin to pray and we begin to fast and we unify and we begin to cry out to God, God will pour out his spirit and send his rain. And that's another way that the water level will come up in a church. And then the third way is streams coming together. And I'm going to show you how these patterns I just read are, are going to be uh, revealed in the 90s revival, so to speak, as, as God did a dredging and as he began to send his rains, but also as he brought streams together. But when streams come together, how many have felt that even here at River of Life in our Pentecost conference, when we brought streams together, the water level comes up, doesn't it? And it takes humility to go deeper. I'm going to tell you, if we will really humble ourselves to the dirt and God do in me whatever you need to do. I remember Lyndall saying in Brownsville, he said, you know, here I am up here leading worship, but he said, I'm also on my face saying, Lord, do in me whatever you got to do in me. Humility and hunger for God. I remember being in a, back in 2003, 4, 5, I was very much involved with Steve Hill's ministry. I was one of the ones that he had uh, prayed over and kind of sent out. There was three of us represented his ministry. Mine represented toward the east here. And God was really doing a deep work in, in my life and through this ministry at that time. And I remember I was in a small meeting with him with a handful of preachers. If I said their names, you know who they are, kind of famous people. But there was one guy there that was prophetic. 
And it just stuck out to me because I remember that when we were in there, you know, Bruce Steve was, he was really known because of Brownsville. And this was right after Brownsville had happened and he hadn't been gone from there very long. But I remember him being so humble and he was just there to receive what God had for him. And I remember this guy prophesying over and praying for him, him getting hit by the power and falling out and just soaking there, just like everybody else, you know, a hunger. You guys remember when Brother John Davis came here? So humble. He's such a humble man. God uses him so mightily. Yet, what does he do? He said, pray for me. And I remember praying with him and him getting hit by the power. Humility. Humility. When people are hungry and they're humble, that's when God's going to show up in a powerful way. All right, so last week we dealt with the 80s revivals, and this was a time of teaching and equipping in the Word of God in a powerful way. Now, God used mighty men of God, in my opinion, to kind of bridge the gap between the 80s and on into the 90s revivals. So you had that, what carried over from Topeka, Azusa, ebb and flow, 40s and 50s, 60s charismatic revival, ebb and flow into the 80s. And then from the 80s, it transitioned into the 90s revivals, but there was kind of a bridge between the two. And God really used Benny Hinn to be one that was a bridge. He used Reinhard Bonnke. He used Carlos Anacondia in Argentine revival, Derek Prince, Kenneth Hagin, and many others, but they helped bridge the gap between the two revivals. Just like Catherine Kuhlman helped bridge it from the 40s, 50s revivals, you know, into the 60s, on into the 70s. She kind of was a bridge there. And Charles Finney was the same way from the, in between the second and third awakening, Finney's ministry helped bridge the gap between the two. As a matter of fact, Lampere got saved under Finney, and he was the spark of the third great awakening. But there's usually some people that God uses in between to help bridge the gap. All right, so as we move into the 90s revivals, let me share a little bit about Argentina because this was kind of a groundwork for the 90s revivals. Y'all hear what I'm saying? This was a foundational. The Argentine revival, it's impossible to talk about it. It took place in the 80s on into the early 90s. But it's impossible to talk about it without going back to the 40s and 50s, which I'm not going to belabor the point. But how many remember me talking about Edward Miller and the prayer meetings? Okay, so Edward Miller was a struggling missionary there that God told him to pray eight hours a day. He began to really pray, get a handful of others, making a very long story short, they began to see some tremendous breakthroughs. And then out of that, as he went and ministered in churches, they began to see the Holy Spirit fall on the churches. He ends up planting a Bible school. The Holy Spirit fell. Actually, an angel of the Lord showed up. The Holy Spirit fell so intense in the Bible school, they began to weep and wail in deep intercession. I, I can't remember. It was like 14 to 21 days, deep intercession over the nation of Argentina. And as God began to move mightily in that he said that God spoke to them that the lion of the tribe of Judah had roared over Argentina and the prevailing powers, the princes and powers over Argentina, their power was broken. And then Tommy Hicks came. Now, this was during the 40s and 50s revival. You, mem you remember me talking about this. So Tommy Hicks was an unknown healing evangelist here in America, 
that traveled to Argentina and he met with the president. It was a divine appointment. Goes in there, meets with Perone at the time. Perone had a skin disease and he wasn't taking pictures and in the public because of it. But he said, do you think that God can heal me? And Tommy Hicks said, I know he can. Shook his hand, prayed with him. He was healed in front of everybody in the room. Right there, instantaneous healing. Perone was so moved in his heart, he basically said, I'm going to give you whatever you need in Argentina. And so they started out in one location, uh, and they ended up having to go into like a bullfighting coliseum because it, the crowd swelled so big. But they had a huge harvest of souls, tremendous healings and miracles, even some notable people that were politicians and famous people in Argentina got saved and or healed or their spouses got healed. It was a tremendous move of God. Something in prayer broke the heavens open over Argentina. And that began something in the spirit. Now, a few decades pass. And in 1979, Carlos Anacondia was a wealthy businessman at a nuts and bolts factory. And he got saved in 1979. And in 1981, he heard the Lord tell him, soon there will be a great revival in Argentina. And so Anacondia began to, he launched his first crusade in 1982 during the Falkland Island War. Now, this was from an Argentinian pastor leader that told me this. This isn't my words, this is his. He said, Argentina was a proud nation. There was too much pride. He said, the people are very proud. But he said the Falkland Island War, as they lost that, humbled the nation. And he said it was a preparation for this revival. Now, in the mid to late 80s in Argentina, Carlos Anacondia began to see incredible outpourings of the Holy Spirit. And let me tell you, you can read about some of it in his book called Listen to Me, Satan. What they would do is that him and others that were with him, his family and others, they would begin to pray and fast and earnestly seek God. And God would put on their heart where they were to go next. But they would stay in prayer and fasting until they knew that God had gone before them and had bound up the forces of hell over that city. When they knew that that had happened, then they would go into the city. And Carlos Anacondia would always set up his platform and all that in the ghettos. He never went to the wealthy areas. Isn't that interesting? And I remember Steve and Jerry Hill saying that somebody took them around back and said, you want to know the power of the revival? And went around behind the scenes to the platform and lift up a curtain so you could see underneath the platform. And there were intercessors underneath there weeping and wailing and groaning in the spirit and crying out for a harvest of souls. That was the power of the Argentine, Argentine revival. And so Carlos Anacondia, he would get up there and he would begin to take authority over the enemy. Now, keep in mind, they had prayed until they knew that God had went before him and bound up the enemy in the heavens. And so he would begin to take authority on the platform in his famous phrase, listen to me, Satan, I bind you, release these people. And as he would begin to take authority, all of a sudden, all these people out there, people would start manifesting demons and fall out under the power in mass. And so they had to have preparation for this because there were so many of them and so they had a whole team they had little vests and everything run out there and they had cots and they would take the people and put them on the cot and run them into a tent 
And this was the deliverance area. And they had people there that would help them get delivered from the enemy. And then, of course, they would lead them to Christ. But Carlos would be up there preaching the gospel. And people would come down and give their lives to Christ. Tremendous healings and miracles, signs and wonders. They had so many people that had dental miracles where teeth were either covered or cavities filled with gold. That happened so much in the Argentine revival that they had to limit the testimonies and say, look, if you've had teeth healings, we can only do one or two of those tonight. Because, I mean, there were so many of them. And they, they had major miracles, everything you can imagine. And, of course, the harvest of souls was so intense in Argentina during that time that it was all through the day, all through the night. Some churches had to accommodate that by having leaders that would work nights and others that would work days and they had to keep their churches open because so many people were getting saved isn't that awesome there were actually recorded accounts where there were some cities not all okay but there was a few places carlos anacondia went that it was like almost a hundred percent of the people got saved in that city isn't that something the power of god and carlos there was a man by the name of claudio freitzen later and Claudio started giving his testimony, and he said that his testimony was this. Now, he, his roommate in Bible school was Sergio Scataglini, who's a pastor's son. So Claudio and Sergio Scataglini are, are best buddies. But Claudio was pastoring three people, and they were elderly, and he said, you know, if they got sick or something, he'd show up with his family, and nobody was there to preach to. And he was a... He had, he was more of a college teacher type of ministry. It was very teaching, kind of dry. But he was so hungry for God, so desperate, that he knew that God was really moving through Benny Hinn. And so he flew here to Orlando. At the time, Benny Hinn was pastoring OCC. It was a big church out in Florida. And he flew there, and he asked Benny to pray for him. And Benny Hinn put his jacket on him. There was a, there was a mantling, a transference of the anointing. And when Claudio went back, heaven came down. And he began to hold crusades. And I mean, people, the same things that were happening in, in Carlos's meetings and Benny Hinn meetings started happening through Claudio. And the power of God began to fall. There's actually, you can look it up, but there's a video on YouTube back in, I think, 19, um, late 80s, early 90s of Claudio having a conference or a, a crusade. And all these people are coming down and they're, they're getting hit by the power falling in mass, just like a Benny Hinn meeting. People coming down and getting saved, it's awesome. Now, Steve Hill was there during those days. He was a missionary to Argentina. And he was close friends with some of the people that God was really using, but he has such a hunger for God. And he had been in places like Russia, and administered there and he had to stand in the lines you know to get government cheese etc and but he has such a heart as a missionary and as a soul winner and there in argentina just hungry for god and i i was honored to be able to spend some time brother steve just the two of us two of us together and he he's spoken in my life and prayed with me but he told me he said when i was in argentina he said i would he would see what was going on and he would just weep and he would call some of his friends like in America and other places and talk about it. They'd weep over the phone. He was just so hungry for revival. And he said he saw Carlos and he wanted what Carlos had, you know. And, and so 
he humbled himself and asked Brother Carlos to pray for him. And after a crusade one night, they went back in the back and Carlos prayed over him and he was hit by the power and he said, I fell out in the mud. <laughs> but he didn't care. And God really touched him. And then he was so hungry, he knew about Claudio. And so he contacted like friends of a friend of a friend. And he found out where Benny Hinn was staying in a hotel. And he told me this story, but I heard Benny talking about this story. Another time I kind of laughed because I knew the story. But he found out any, him and his friend flew to America and went to the hotel. And Benny was coming out of a meeting and they said, would you pray for us? And Benny Hinn's side of the story was this. He said, I just come out of a difficult meeting. And he said, I was very upset. I was in a bad mood. And I just had to deal with some very difficult people and I was in no mood to pray for anybody. But those two guys were there so hungry. And Benny said, well, come over here. And they went back to an area, I think it was like where, you know, the doors open, there's like a laundry room. So they'd be kind of private. It was something like that. And Benny said, touch. And th these two guys were thrown back and hit by the power. And then Benny went off. You know, he was still fuming mad about things. And he had to go deal with stuff. But Steve was so hungry for God. Are y'all hear what I'm saying? Let this be an inspiration. And so then I'm hearing this from Steve directly. He's telling me this firsthand, his pursuit. And he said that after that, he found himself going to England. And he stayed with some friends there. And there, on, there was a magazine, well-known magazine. And it says on the magazine, Holy Spirit Falls at Holy Trinity Brompton. And it talked about how there was like a line, like a mile long. Holy Trinity Brompton is an Anglican church. And a man by the name of Sandy Miller was, was the pastor there, the vicar. And, and Steve would, was reading it. And he said as he was going there to England, he said that he was on this ferry. And he said that this, the sounds of amazing grace was playing bagpipes was playing over the intercom. And he said he felt the Holy Spirit so strong on him as he was listening to that, just bringing tears to him. He was reading this magazine. And, and so he, he asked his friends, he said, have you, have you read about, do you know about this revival? And his friends said, that's our church, Steve. He said, we'll call the pastor. So they help him line up a meeting with Sandy Miller to get prayer. And so he goes in at the appointed time this is the third time he's going to get impartation. He goes in and there's, there's bodies all over the floor. And what had happened was Sandy Miller had asked Randy Clark to come out of the Toronto revival, asked him to come and speak. And so Randy comes, speaks, prays with everybody. And now the Holy Spirit is just really moving in this church. And so Steve comes in. He says, I'm walking over bodies all over the ground. And he said, if you know anything about Britain, you know that British people normally don't do this. You know, it's not proper. <laughs> well, he's stepping over bodies to get to Sandy Miller. And Sandy says, oh, our meeting, Steve, I'm so sorry. But look what happened. And Steve said, I don't need to have a meeting. Just pray for me. I came here to receive. And he said, Sandy Miller, pray for him. And he fell out on the power. And he said it was just like rivers flowing through him. He got up from there. And, and as God had mildly touched his life through the Argentine revival, Benny Hinn's ministry, and of course through what was happening through Toronto, really. That was what was going on there at this church. God had prepared him for what was to come, which I'll come to that here in a moment.
So let me go back now. So the Argentine revival was the groundwork. Even with Toronto, which I'll talk about, John Arnott and them went to Argentina to receive. Claudio prayed for them. This is all preparatory. So let me talk about, let me go back a little bit. I'm getting ahead of myself, I'm sorry. But I'm going to talk about Rodney Howard Brown. So Rodney was in South Africa. How many love Brother Rodney? He's hilarious. And he's a very anointed man. I've got ministry from him many times. I just love and honor him, appreciate him. And while he was in Africa, this is a young man, he was, he was telling the story. I've heard him tell it. He said he was so desperate for God. And he was, there was such a hunger, such a desperate cry in him. And he was in a meeting and other people worshiping said, but he was crying out to God as loud as he could in the meeting, which I'm sure, you know, other people are like, man, you know, but he's screaming, Lord, if you don't touch me, I, I can't take it. If you don't touch me, I'm going to have to go up there and touch you. I can't stay. He was just hungry. It was like a desperation in him. And the Holy Spirit fell on him and struck him to the ground. And that was the impartation on his life. And he said after that, they had had a move of the Spirit among some of the young people there. But he had a heart to come to America. And people teased him, gave him a hard time about it. Like, who do you think you are? Okay, yeah, you're going to go to America, are you? you know? But he had a heart to come here. He felt that. And God spoke to him. Listen to what God told Brother Rodney. God told him, said, for the last couple hundred years, America has been instrumental in sending missionaries all over the world. And God told Brother Rodney, but I'm going to send some missionaries now into America to help bring revival to America. And that's why he came. Thank God for Brother Rodney. I appreciate him. So if anybody, if he ever, for whatever reason, sees this or whatever, there are people that love you and appreciate you, Brother Rodney. And so he came here in 1987, a wife, three kids, and like I think he said $300. How many knows you step out in faith when you do that? And he was an itinerant minister living by faith. He was going from church to church. And God was using him. But in 1989, in Clifton Park, New York, the Holy Spirit fell in his meeting. Now, he wasn't expecting this because he's up preaching. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit just falls on the crowd and people are laughing. This was before Toronto. And so he didn't know what to make of it. And to be honest with you, he said... I was hearing him tell about it. He said, I didn't really like it too much because I'm up here trying to preach and people are laughing. It's distracting. And he said, okay, well, God moved in that way. So he leaves there and goes to the next place. And he says in the middle of him preaching and doing his thing, next thing you know, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit starts falling and people are really laughing. I mean, some of them falling on the ground laughing. And he's thinking to himself, dear God, it's following me around. And he didn't really like it because he was like, it was, it was a different type of revival than what he was used to. Now, he grew up in Pentecost, and he said even as a little boy, his parents would have people over praying for him. They'd fall out speaking in tongues. And he says, a little child, he remembers him and his brothers and him sitting there playing with Hot Wheels or whatever, seeing people all over the ground of his house speaking in tongues. So he grew up in Pentecost, but he had, he had never been around this. And so he didn't know what to make of it. Then he goes to the next place and the next place, and, and this is following him everywhere he goes. But it ends up getting so intense. And some of the places he went had major extended revivals. People are getting saved. People are getting healed. 
people were being set free from stuff, baptized the Holy Spirit, and it was intense. I remember in Carpenter's house out in Lakeland, Florida, was one of the ones that was an extended revival there. And if I'm not mistaken, I think that's where Randy Clark went and got so powerfully touched before Toronto. But Rodney was really used there, and there was even a video you can look up on YouTube. See, I like now, I'm getting more modern, so I can tell you, you can go watch the video. You see, I'm talking about a Susie, I can't do that, right? But now you can see it for yourself. But there was a famous video in Lakeland in the early 90s where they were worshiping, and there were angels that were even heard singing in the video. And the glory of God is awesome in that meeting. That was in Lakeland. And the revival there, um, trying to remember the man's name that passed it, but I believe it was Carpenter's house there. But anyway, he everywhere he went. And I remember that Ruby and Addie were the ones that were mentoring me. And I remember them taking me to Rodney's meetings. And we went to Fort Worth. And I mean, the Holy Spirit, you, you would just drive there. And when you were coming into the parking lot, you felt the presence of God strong. And I remember going into those places just overwhelmed. And let me tell you, there's a strong anointing on Brother Rodney. I want to honor him. I remember there was one time out in Rowlett, he was ministering. And, and when I could, I went to all the meetings I could. So this was during the day, so the crowd was smaller because a lot of people had to work. And there, was a, there was a younger man that came in and got saved. And not only did he get saved, but he had had some problems with his legs. And so Brother Rodney was praying for his legs because he fell out under the power, you know. So Brother Rodney's praying for his legs and like moving his legs like this, picks him up, says, "How your le his legs were totally healed. Then not only that, he got baptized in the Holy Ghost and fell out again, speaking in tongues. So this revival that Brother Rodney brought was instrumental in, in many other subsequent moves of God. So this also had a hand in what was about to happen at Toronto. Now let's go back in time and talk about some of the history that led up to Toronto. I did not know this, but there was around a 15 to 20 year preparation for Toronto that I did not know. I thought that it was just a couple years. But John and Carol Arnott had been through some painful times in their past and, and they, they had been divorced. It was something they didn't want. He didn't want. And... Um, it was just really a difficult thing that they went through. And so they felt, because, you know, back then, people weren't as nice about stuff like that, right? And so they felt back in 1974 that God had, wasn't going to use them in the ministry, but they, they would go into business, and maybe they could go to church and just be used of God where they could, you know. But how many knows that God doesn't write people off or throw them away like a piece of trash? Amen? Yeah. So in 1974, he went to Jerusalem to a conference. And this was one of those big deals to him because he had never been to Israel, so he went on a fast. He went there really hungry for God. And he was there. There was a man that was preaching, and he noticed there was different, different denominations and different people represented, and there was even some Catholics up there, up in the front area. And so he kind of had a problem with some of that. He's like, oh, you know, he's kind of being critical. And the man that was preaching was preaching on the love of God. And he said that God, like an arrow, shot his presence and power into his heart. And it was the love of God. It was so strong that what hit him 
that even in the hotel room later, he was just weeping uncontrollably because he was so critical and negative of others. You got to be careful with that. You don't have to agree with everybody's doctrine, but you better love everybody. Amen? And so God began to really break him and deal with some of the things in him that need to be dealt with because in Toronto, God was going to be drawing everybody. Now, I'm going to tell you, I'm sure that you feel this way already, River of Life, but nobody's going to be standing at a door having people fill out a card before they can come in. I don't care what they come out of. I want them to come in and experience Jesus Christ, okay? And whatever their background is, whatever their past is, once they meet Jesus, he'll start taking care of all that, amen? And so God had to do something in John. Then him and Carol, they, they felt like, you know, we don't know if God can really use this, but in 1979, some people had invited him out to Indonesia. And when he went to Indonesia, he was thinking that he was going there uh, he didn't realize that he was going to be like a main speaker at all. And it, it was dropped on him when he got there. He said, oh, you're the main speaker. How many does not want that to happen to you, right? I would. But he said the Holy Spirit just took over. And, and, and the Holy Spirit fell so hard in those meetings, and God did such a tremendous work. They were in awe. And so they come back, and they realize, you know, I believe God is wanting to use us. And so they asked the Lord what to do. And God began to move on their heart to, to start a church in Carol's hometown. And this was where God began to teach them and train them about the ministry. Because you got to learn how to deal with all the issues that go on in the ministry that people that just sit in chairs have no idea till you get into it, what goes on behind the scenes and all the difficult things that you have to deal with, trust me. And so they, this was their preparation. And God spoke to them because he was so hungry for God, he was asking the Lord for a revival. And he was connected to Vineyard. At the time, Vineyard was, is okay just tell them revival stories tonight for a little bit? Is that okay? At that time, Vineyard was kind of on the cutting edge. John Wimber had come out of the music scene and gotten saved. And his heart was, you know, why does the church have such cheesy praise and worship? Good question, because I remember that stuff. <laughs> anyway, anybody my age or older knows what I'm talking about. And so he, he brought in some really powerful, I mean, Vineyard was on the cutting edge of, of powerful worship at that time, and it was anointed. And so this new wave of worship was coming in, and, and John Wimber connected with Lonnie Frisbee at the time, who, who was used so powerfully in the 60s, and into the 70s. Anyway, there was a, a move of like power evangelism, healings and miracles. And so John and Carol were connected to Vineyard in that move of God. As a matter of fact, Randy Clark was connected to that and was really touched in the 80s during that move, okay? But John and Carol were crying out for revival. And God spoke to John this. He said, if you and Carol will give me your mornings, that means seek the Lord. So they, they were going to pray in the mornings. Instead of just going to the office and working, they were going to spend time in prayer. If you'll give me your mornings, and he said, if you will go and get prayer, get hands laid on you, places where I'm moving, if you will go pursue that, he said, you'll get what you're asking me for. And so John and Carol began to do it. They gave God their mornings. And they began to go and receive from the Lord. 
And, of course, John sought out Benny Hinn and got prayer from him. But John said, you know, they had to put, I heard him tell the story, he said, we had to put money on our credit card to go to Argentina. He said, we raised what we could, but we put money on our credit card, and we were so desperate. He said, we went to Argentina to Claudio's meeting, and it was like a conference, and Claudio's praying for everybody. We're running down getting prayer. And, uh, you know, Carol was always, and this is them talking from them, okay, but Carol was always easily touched. But John says this about himself. He said, I was more of an analytic type. And I had a harder time receiving because I'm trying to figure it all out. He said, Carol, just wham, she's, she's out, she's getting touched, and here I am going, what's really going on right now, you know? And he's trying to analyze it all. And so Claudio's going through praying for everybody, and Carol's just blasted, gets to John and prays for him, and is walking off and turns back around to John and says, do you want this? And John's thinking to himself, I flew all the way from Toronto here. I spent all this money, and you're asking me, do I want, you know, he's thinking all this internally. But he says, yes, and he said, listen to what he said, then take it, you see. In other words, I think what he was saying was, quit trying to figure everything out, just receive. And so John did, he got hit by the power. When they came back, things were beginning to be different. He started noticing more and more of an anointing. And then he heard about, Randy Clark. They didn't know each other at the time. Randy was, was pastoring a small fellowship, and I've heard Randy tell his story, and he was just dry, burned out. He had been touched in the 80s, but man, he was at a very dry place spiritually. How many have ever been there? Uh, I know what he's talking about. He was dry, and he said, God, I've got to have your touch. He was so desperate. He knew that Rodney was being used mightily of God, and if I'm not mistaken, I think it was in Florida, but he went all the way to Florida to that meeting to get prayer. And he went down to Brother Rodney pray for him, and he was just blasted by the power of God. And it was through John Wimber and the vineyard and that move of God, now you had what was flowing through Brother Rodney, those two streams coming together in Randy's life. The anointing exploded. He goes back to his church. The Holy Spirit falls on these people, and they're being powerfully touched. Well, John had gotten back from Argentina and heard about what was going on in Randy's meeting. So he calls Randy. He said, Randy, I want you to come minister here. And Randy did not want to come. He didn't feel adequate. He was thinking, I don't have a lot of sermons. I'm just a pastor of a little church over here. I, I don't, why would I go? And he didn't want to go. How many knows you got to be careful with that because this was about to be the Toronto revival, okay? And six nights a week for 12 years was going to see 4 million people. And he didn't want to go. But John talked him into it. And John just kept on him about wasn't going to let up. You, you got to come, brother. You got to come. So Randy goes. And the way that they tell the story was that all this preparation since the mid-70s, so you're looking at 20 years of preparation God been doing. Think about that. This was January 1994. Randy's ministering, and if you know anything about Randy Clark, he's kind of soft-spoken. He's not charismatic at all, and he's just given his message. He says, if you want this anointing, if you want to receive, I'll be happy to pray with you. And they said that everybody was kind of, you know, Canadian people, hey, this sounds good, yeah. So they all start standing up. Next thing you know, 
They said it was a suddenly, nobody was expecting this, including Randy. They said the Holy Spirit just fell hard on everybody at one time. And people were slammed. They were all under the chairs. The whole building, everybody there slammed at one time. And one of the ladies in the back, who was a minister connected to the church, was wondering what happened to everybody. And went in there, you know, and she's looking around and there's nobody in sight. And she's, what? And she's looking at literally 120 people under chairs everywhere, just laughing and crying and shaking and everything else. And then she gets slammed. And so that was the beginning of the Toronto revival. But Toronto, again, six days a week for 12 years, and in some ways is probably still going on. We went there in 2014, Sandy and I, to a conference 20 years later. Everybody say 20 years later. And there was, when we walked in, I mean, it was, to me, there was an open heaven. The presence of God was awesome there. And so... There was a lot. How many knows Satan will stir up as much controversy and confusion as he can? I don't have time to get into it. But a lot of the rumors were exaggerated. There was a lot of criticism that was unfounded. But the devil did everything he could try to discredit that move of God. He did. But people, the more the devil tried to do that, the more people came. Isn't it interesting how that works? The devil always overplays his hand. He somehow offers free publicity. His people will come out of curiosity. But they had around 4 million people go through Toronto, mightily touched. And then when they would come back, would see revivals. Now, leading up from knee deep to waist deep. So here in America, there were some that were really hungry for revival. Down in Brownsville, God had placed a hunger in Pensacola and the pastor there, John Kilpatrick, for revival, God spoke to him. said, if you'll return to the God of your childhood, I'll pour out my spirit. The God of his childhood was a God of prayer. And so he had grown up in a powerful, uh, with a powerful pastor who was a man of prayer. And so every night, he said, as he was growing up being mentored by this pastor, um, they would spend every evening in prayer at the church all right so as he began to try to figure out uh, you know how am i going to create an atmosphere of prayer in this church god spoke to him dude on sunday nights and to to make these banners which was just simply an area to pray so it was categories so one banner would have to do with souls another would have to do revival another one leaders of the country etc and they would have them spaced out throughout the sanctuary and when after the worship time they, whoever you felt to go pray. And so people be drawn to a certain area to pray. They were led by the Spirit. But he said he heard the most weeping and wailing and pounding the floor at the revival banner. And they prayed for two and a half years. They took communion on Sunday nights. He would speak a blessing over them. They would anoint and pray for people, for the sick. And they just devoted that night to worship and prayer. And after two and a half years, God had kind of prepared the atmosphere in the church. Now, toward the end of that time, he was just really desperate and broken. And he had kind of felt, God, are you ever going to move? You know, he said when they first started all this, it felt like God could move any time. But after years and years of praying, he said it felt like it was never going to happen. He had felt discouraged, kind of burned out. 
Not to mention he had gone through some difficulties in life, the stress of the ministry. His mother was in the nursing home dying. He wasn't in a good place. And then uh, at this time, he sends Lyndall and Brenda, which let me say the story about Lyndall. He had a worship leader leave. And so he's asking God, who am I going to get to leave worship? And God told him Lyndall Cooley, and he said, I'll use him in a mighty way. Well, Lyndall was burned out, and he was working secular work in the music industry. And Brother John searches him out and has lunch with him, talks to him, and says, God told me you're going to come leave worship. And Lyndall said, well, I'm, I'm not. And he did not have the best attitude at all. But John kept talking to him, saying, look, brother, God told me you're coming. So you're coming. It's just... And so Lyndall finally resigned it with himself. He would go. He grew up in a pastor's home. And, and anyway, so he goes there. He's, he's new to this. And Brother John had talked to him and, and said, well, what do you think about Toronto? He said, I don't know. He said, well, listen, I want you and my wife to go. And there was a few others. I want you to go down there. And they went down there and got touched powerfully at Toronto. As a matter of fact, Brenda tells the story and she weeps when she tells it and says that she was just there. You know, they had everybody line up that wanted prayer, and she was just there to receive. And some sweet lady comes over and says, well, you know, what do you need from the Lord? She said, well, I'm just a pastor's wife, and I just need whatever God has for me. And she said, next thing I know, it's like my toes went up. I went out, and she said, I, was, I felt like, this is her words, I felt like I was a tea bag, and God just poured the, the warm water all over me and was just saturating me. And she came back. And Brother John said she was totally different. Said it looked almost like her hair was shining. She was totally different. And uh, their son said that he would come by and she'd be in the kitchen listening to some of the worship. She'd be in there dancing and stuff like that. And he was like, something's happened to my mom. You know, something's different. Brother John said I I would call and uh, be like, you know, is supper ready? I'm about to come home. And she'd be, well... And there'd be tissues all around the recliner where she'd been weeping, praying for hours. And he said, man, you know, so she was, she was really touched. Anyway, he, was, he wasn't doing good spiritually. And so Steve, Steve Hill and him talk. He had been there to minister many times. And, and Steve's telling him about all that happened when he went to Holy Trinity Brompton, England, how God had touched him and just going on and on. And so Brother John says, well, why don't you come and speak here, Brown? So he said, all right, so I'll be there. So they come. It's Father's Day of all times. Not a good time to have an evangelist in and see a revival because everybody's wanting to go out to eat with their dad, right? You know, but it's Father's Day. And John was telling the story that Steve and Brenda were there. They were eating that night before and just talking about what God had done in their lives. And he was sitting there just hungry because he hadn't experienced it. And he's hearing them just on and on and on about what God had done, you know, and he's just sitting there just, man, just dry. And so the next morning, he didn't even want to go. See, that's a common thing I'm seeing. It's like the devil's trying to keep people out at a key time. He said that he woke up Sunday morning and picked up the phone. He wasn't even going to go to church that morning. He was going to get somebody else to give out the plaque to the dad of the year or whatever and just let him have it. Steve's going to preach. Lyndall's got the worship or whatever. I'm not even going to show up. It was the day that God was going to fall. But he remembered, he said, remember this little girl, her dad was going to win the award. A little girl would always come up and tug on his pants and say, Pastor, I love you. And he said, I went to church for her that morning, just for her. So he gets there, and Steve's up there just preaching. And um, he's just on fire. 
He's telling stories. And then he says, if you want this today, if you want to get prayer, if you want to receive, I want you just to come down. And John's mad because it's Father's Day and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people come down to get prayer. He says, dear God, man, I'm gonna have to, we're going to have to go pray for all these people, Steve. It's like noon and everybody wants to go eat with their dad. But now we're going to go through and pray for everybody. He did not have a good attitude according to what he, he's telling the story like this. So they go through and pray for people, but it was like a rushing mighty wind blew in. He said he heard a wind blowing. He thought it was the speakers. He said he felt the river of God come in. It buckled his ankles. And as Steve was praying for people, the Holy Spirit fell. Many people didn't even leave at all that day. They stayed all the way through till the evening service. And then they had to start having services. From that point on, Steve kept staying on with them. And it would go all night. They would see the sun come up the next day. And people started hearing about it and coming from all over. And they were having services. You know, they had to start limiting this because they, their services were literally going all night. People getting prayer, people coming in, people driving in from great distances. But you guys know that Brownsville was a place that I would, I would estimate conservatively, in my opinion, that at least a million people got their lives right with God. Whether it was unsaved people getting saved for the first time, prodigals coming home, backsliders repenting, religious people realizing that they were hypocritical and repenting. There was at least a million people get their lives right with God. And it, it was phenomenal. And I was touched there among many other places. It was interesting in my journey because I had no idea. He's talking about clueless. But God just works things out. I was going to Bible school down in, in, in Waxhatchee area and I had just heard about this revival meeting and I'm thinking, you know, a good service. And I go down to a church in South Dallas at the time and Claudio Freitzen said, I don't even know who this guy is. I'm thinking, oh, great, you know, they got a missionary coming in. And I was there just hungry, but the worship was electric and there was something in the atmosphere that I was not familiar with. There was, an, there was something of the anointing that was stirring in me. And I remember just going down to get prayer and I remember Claudio praying for me and me getting thrown backward and just a fresh baptism in the Holy Ghost and fresh tongues in my life and refreshing empowerment. And I didn't even realize at the time being totally, completely clueless to any of this that God had just visited the Argentine revival in my life. And that was in 95. And after that, I remember I was at Bible school and um, there was a particular lady that had brought a video from what was going on in Brownsville. And some of you have seen the Allison Ward testimony where she's under the power of God and she's shaking and she's sharing. You remember seeing that? You gotta go look that up. Again, you can find it on YouTube, right? And, and she was really, you know, and she began to weep and the Holy Spirit fell in the room. Well, they show the video and the Holy Spirit moves in the room. And I start weeping. And I start really feeling like, man, maybe I need to go down there. And of course, some of the leadership there didn't know, well, we don't know if this is of God or not, you know, whatever. I'm thinking to myself, don't you feel what I feel, you know? But I was thankful that I was going to a church where that particular pastor was hungry for God and had went to Brownsville. And I was just interning there and helping out with the youth. But he told me, he said, you need to go. But he said, if you go, you need to at least stay for three days or more. And you need to get prayer when you go. 
Isn't that good advice? I was thankful God had me under the right guy. And so I was a poor college student with zero money. So I said, you know, you know how it is. I call, hey, mom, <laughs> how would you like to go to Pensacola? You know, because dad's working. He can't get off for that long. And so, and so we lined it up, and we went down to Pensacola. It was just 96, wasn't it? Something like March of 96. And, man, I'll never forget it. Because I remember that night, Brother Steve was preaching on don't, don't grieve or quench or resist the Holy Spirit. And he had had like a candle up there and they had dimmed the lights and he was talking about how you can quench the Holy Spirit in your life and he blew out the candle. And the Holy Spirit was just electric and he started, you know, having an altar call and you would kind of have to be there and experience it. But it was so intense. I knew I was saved. I mean, I knew I was. I went to Bible school. I knew I was saved, but I still went down to get saved. It was just that intense. And I knew the pastor told me, make sure you get prayer. And so I remember that just an altar worker walking by just prayed for me. And I remember being thrown back in the air, just this random altar worker. And I was baptized in the Holy Ghost. I was baptized in a fire that I still feel today. And I remember going back and I was different. I was totally different. And so God visited my life, and of course, every chance I got to go um, receive somewhere, and Brother Rodney was in driving distance, or uh, somebody anointed, I would go. And one person God really used in my life was Floyd Lahan. I believe he's still ministering, but he was a, one of the spiritual fathers to Perry Stone. And Brother Floyd was anointed. Now, he went to a little church out in Ennis, and this was a small church. And I remember going there because Ruby and Addie, God bless them, they knew every move of God apparently and every time something was going on, they just, you know, they'd feel it, man. Here we go to it, you know. And so they took me to it. I'd never even heard of Brother Floyd. And they said, well, we need to go. He's anointed. You'll like it. Okay, so we went. And little did I know how much of a life-altering thing that would be for me. I didn't even know who he was. And he would pray for people. I don't have like a physical Bible. I'm using an iPad. But he would have like a, a little Bible. And he would pray for people with his Bible. Touch their head. Or open it and put it like this. And they would get slammed. And so that's just the way he did it. And I remember I was sitting there. And the worship had happened. He had preached. Now he had talked about it. I was expecting. It was back then. It was like so much criticism about these different revivals and I hated it because God had touched me and I, I hated hearing the criticism it annoyed me but I was sitting there and I was thinking to myself this old Pentecostal preacher he starts talking about the revivals and I thought oh here we go but he said I went to Brownsville and God touched me and then an awesome move of God there and I thought oh this guy has a clue and he walked by me, and he had his Bible just kind of set it on my head. Back then, I had hair, believe it or not. And I remember just getting hit by that Bible, and I mean to tell you, I melted. I was out on the pew. And he goes up there, and he's preaching. And, he, and it was kind of a funny story because I had managed, it was very difficult, I managed to prop myself back up in the pew. And he's praying for everybody. There. And he looks out there and points at me in the congregation and says, young man, I want you to come here. And this is probably 96. 
I was around 20 years old. He said, young man, I want you to come here. And I really didn't know if it, so I'm looking around like, you know, is he talking to me or somebody else? He said, no, you. Yes, you. Come here. And I got out of the pew, and I'm trying to walk down there. And I'm shaking such. He's kind of laughing at me a little bit because I really was having a hard time. I was trying to walk, and my legs were shaking. And I'm going down there. And he says, when I was about your age, there was a, a man from Britain had passed a mantle to my life. That's when the Holy Spirit really came upon me. And the Holy Spirit says this for you tonight. And he prays for me. And I mean to tell you, that's all I really remember. Because the people that were with me had to tell me the story. I was oblivious. But they said, you went out hard and everybody around you went out. And so he said, I'm supposed to pray for him seven times. So they said a different group of people came up, a few men to pick me up, and then he prayed for me again, and they went out with me. And then more came up and picked me up, and, they, and pretty soon they said there was just piles of people in the front, and I, they said I was out for like an hour. I was so out of it that if somebody had yelled fire and pulled the alarm, I was a dead man. I couldn't move. I mean, I was out of it under the glory. But I knew something had changed, and... Uh, Ruby and Addie. Addie really loved me like a son. I mean, probably could do no wrong. I was, I was, I was a goober, whatever you want to call me. I was a doofus. You know, I was just a young guy, but she just loved me. But Ruby, on the other hand, was like, you need to straighten up. <laughs> you need to fly straight. You, you, you know, she was like that, and I needed both of that. But I remember Ruby, it was funny because she was the one that was always on my case, you know. And I remember her kind of looking surprised. I think you really received something to that, Scott. <laughs> she was surprised that God would touch me like, anyway, but God really moved. <laughs> Y'all can appreciate that. She was shocked that God really came and touched me like that. That's, she, anyway, but it was, it was awesome, and God, God really moved in my life. I, I remember going to see Benny Hinn, and Benny prayed for all of us there. And I got as much as I could during that time, and I still feel it in my life. But you know what encouraged me was that the Toronto Revival, there was a 20-year preparation. And I thought about all these years that God's been preparing all of this in my life and in this church and what God's been doing. And, and that really encouraged me to, to see that there's a long-term preparation. And I think a lot of times people think, well, it's just going to happen. You start praying, it's just going to happen in a month or two. It could be several years. So I need to start closing this out. But the 80s revival brought with it the teaching that we needed to equip us. But the 90s revival brought the impartation to come together with the teaching that brought us to maturity. But the 90s revival was just that first wave. So let me reiterate the prophecy again. They said there would be a wave that would come and many would get saved and touched, and it would be so intense that people would think, this is it. The Lord's coming. This is the big one. But they said, it's not. There's going to be a much bigger wave coming behind it. And they said, many that are saved and touched in that first wave will be used in the next one. We're about to see that next one. They said the next one was like a tsunami. And I believe that's the one that's going to usher in the Lord's coming. I really do. We're that close. I don't have time to get off on a rabbit trail about end-time prophecy, but after teaching on it, the spine of prophecy, then the book of Revelation, I think that you guys would agree with me 
that we don't have another hundred years. The Lord's about to come. And the time is short, and it has seemed so difficult. But trust me, when the Holy Spirit falls and God begins to show up, things that were difficult will become easy. Things that seemed impossible will start happening. An impossible harvest will come in. Impossible harvest. People you would have never thought would get saved will get saved. Major miracles will happen of a biblical proportion. Major deliverances and people will be set ablaze. You're going to see people hungry again. That's probably the hardest thing for me. Say, what was it like to live through all that and see where we are today? Well, there's a lot I could say, but I think the hardest thing for me is seeing people lose the fire. I mean, I personally know people, I'm not saying this critically, I'm just saying this, that makes me really sad, that they used to drive great distances, I'm talking 12, 13 hours, stay in hotels to go to revival meetings, that now can't even get them to come up the road here, drive 20 minutes and it's free. What happened to the fire? What happened to the hunger? See, that's been the hardest thing for me. But God's about to breathe on the embers. You know, I'm going to read this last little part, and we'll close it out, but I want to share this story. Did Brother Ralph share about the embers? You know, that's where Brianna got the name Emberly from, was from what Brother Ralph, I believe it's prophetic, she felt that name, but... Brother Ralph said that revival had been so awesome in the 90s and into the early 2000s and all that, and then it began to wane, and he began to really be discouraged. And he was asking the Lord, you know, Lord, what's going on? Because, I mean, we all thought the Lord was about to come back then. That was that first wave. Everybody thought this was the big one, you know. <laughs> and he thought, man, you know, what's going on here? And the Lord gave him an open vision where he saw this huge field, and in the field, the fire had once been there, but the fire had died down, and he saw like little little pockets of smoke still coming up, and he knew growing up in church, they had this thing called Royal Rangers, like Boy Scouts, and he used to go to Boy Scout type of stuff all the time. Well, he knew, you know, in the morning, the fire was died down, just a little bit of smoke coming, but if you get some kind of a poker and you begin to stir the fire, put fresh logs on, it'll get right back up. And he saw that there was these little places, there was just a little bit of smoke, but the Lord began to blow on that field again and they, those flames started coming back up. Those embers were under the surface. So Luke twelve forty nine, Jesus said this, I have come to send fire upon the earth and I wish that it were already kindled. Jesus is about to cast fire on the earth. One prophet I read from years ago said that he saw the very last day revival before Jesus would come. And he said he saw the Lord like gathering up fire from every revival that had ever been. Going all the way back, it was like he was gathering up different fire from different revivals. And he did like this and gathered it into one big ball and he cast it on the earth. And that was the last great revival that was going to come and I believe that we're at it I believe that the revival that's about to happen will be kind of a consummation of all things it'll be a final work and it's going to make everything that seemed like it would never happen will happen 
But here's, can you imagine this with me for a moment? A move of the Holy Spirit for souls that is so intense. It's like we read about in the fields of Cane Ridge in Hebrides and Wales where the Holy Spirit just moved and over the masses and people were gripped with the fear of God, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Kind of like the altar calls under Finney and there at Brownsville that people were just drawn. There was such a conviction. Can you imagine with me for a moment seeing that intensity for souls like never before? Can you imagine the healings and miracles, signs and wonders that happened in Azusa Street and that happened in the revivals of the 40s and 50s that that becomes commonplace, major healings and miracles that people are coming sick and people are bringing the sick because they know they're going to be healed. Can you imagine such an intense move of the Holy Spirit like the deliverances that happen at Carlos Anacondia's meetings and Derek Prince meetings that people in mass are being set free from all this demonic torment? Can you imagine the baptisms in the Holy Ghost like we read about at Susan in the 90s, that all these different moves of God of the past, all of that is coming in together as one big ball of fire that's going to be cast on the earth. And we're going to see all of it come in. Where what started out ankle deep and moved knee deep and then waist deep and then seemed to wane is going to come in like an over-the-head river. All, it is, all of a sudden, it's like one man was out and the tide was down and there was this big boat stuck in the mud. And the guy told him, push on, he's push on that boat. There's no way he's going to budge that boat. And he said, how are we going to do this? And the man said, don't worry about it. When the tide comes in, and when the tide came in, that boat lifted right up out of the mud and you could move it easily. You could lean up against it and the whole thing would just move. So what's going to draw God into a place? Three things. Humility. God gives his grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. Are we humble enough to say, God, whatever you've got to do in me, whatever you've got to change in me, whatever I've got to repent of, whatever you've got to do, just do it in me. Are we going to be humble enough to go and receive. It took humility for people like Steve and John and others to go and get hands laid on them or to have other people come in. It takes humility to be able to receive one from another. What about a hunger for God? Number one is humility. Number two is hunger. Are we going to have a desperate hunger in, for God in us? I remember Steve, one of his famous quotes, I'm not sure I'll get it perfectly right, but he said, if you're truly hungry for God, he said, you're willing to be a fool in the eyes of your peers and other people as long as you can be embraced in the arms of God. There's a desperate hunger that is a crying out for God to come that will cause people to be willing to drive distances to receive or whatever I've got to do, whatever price I've got to pay. If I've got to skip some meals, whatever God requires of me, I'm so humble and I'm so hungry that I'm willing to do it. And the third thing I would say is this, ask. The Bible says you have not because you ask not. 
Don't be shy about it. God wants people that will pray and people that will pray big. Praying big is faith. Praying that one or two people get saved. No, no, no. Pray that God give you nations. Pray that God will pour out his spirit in such a way that the masses will be impacted. Pray big. Let's believe God for a supernatural harvest that's above and beyond what we could ask, think, or imagine. Let's believe God to heal people that, I mean, biblical level miracles. Let's believe God to set free the most tormented people and to refresh and empower and get us ready to meet him in the air. A bride made ready. But let's pray big. I believe it was D.L. Moody said, if God be your partner, make your plans large. Don't plan small. Don't pray small. Don't think small. Plan big. God's wanting to provide his spirit and shake America. He's wanting to shake the nations. He's wanting a people that will believe him for it. So let's press in. But I know it's going to take some deep intercession in God. And I know River of Life is doing that. So we're going to just simply close out this time. And then we're going to spend some time in prayer. But Lord, I thank you. I thank you for coming down in power. And Lord, as maybe we can just kind of go off, off the to a different screen or something but lord i thank you even as we move into a season here of prayer for a few moments before we close this out lord i thank you for coming upon these intercessors and really begin to pray through them in this place and lord i'm asking you let we agree together let there be a desperate cry in us for more of god there's something about that desperation in people that will drive them to, to whatever they've got to do to receive what God has for them. But God's looking for that. Do we have a level of hunger in us that will cry out for more of God? And so I want us just to spend some time where if you want to kneel, if you want to, however you want to,